Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. I'm having so much more fun now. I have let them show me how to live their way. This is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 226. The Fun Ideas Podcast is brought to you in part by Freaky Magazine. I contribute material to every issue, so give it a try. Hey kids, have you read Freaky? The magazine of weird humor for freaks like you. Freaky Magazine is a way out collection of weirdo comics, kooky gags, photo funnies, social satire, and surreal collage. 52 pages of insanity in the tradition of magazines of yore like Cracked, Plop, and Zap. Special offer for Fun Ideas listeners, get a free sample copy in the mail, made of smelly newsprint and smudgy ink the old-fashioned way. Just message your mailing address to the slow poisoner at gmail.com that's the slow poisoner at gmail.com while supplies last you remember them from your childhood half for the friendly ghost richie ridge hot stuff baby hooey sad sack and little audrey you read them in comic books and saw them on television and in the movies now you can read about how they and other Harvey comic characters were created in two great books from Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions, The Best of Harveyville Fun Times and The Harvey Comic Companion. Both are available from Amazon. The Companion is also available from Fair Manor Media. They are available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook version. Order your copies today. Friends, have you tried Lee's Comics? Lee's Comics is better than the leading comic book store. Wait a minute. Lee's Comics is the leading comic book store. Based on arbitrary standards set by Lee Hester himself. Lee's Comics was named as one of the 21 best online dealers by PopOptique.com. To shop the Lee's Comics eBay store, go to eBay and search for Lee's Comics, Inc. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast when you order, and you'll receive a free bonus gift. The revised second edition of my Monkey's Book with Michael A. Ventrella, called Long Title, stars of Walt Disney Productions, and Pac-Man, the first animated TV show based upon a video game, are my latest books out now. Unconditionally Mad and Not Just Happy Together, the Turtles book, are in production. I'm also working on my TV Cartoons at Time Forgot book, plus articles on cancelled Harvey titles, and making contributions to Freaky Magazine. On today's show, we have an artist, instructor, and historian. And along with our returning animation historian, here they are, Rob Stolzer with Camden Spees. Hi, this is Mark Arnold with another episode of Fun Ideas Podcast, and today I have... New special guest uh, brought to us by Camden Spees, who's a returning guest, and his name is Rob Stolzer. How are you, and how are you? <laughs> I am doing well. Thank you, Mark. So, um, Camden brought uh, you with us today, Rob, and basically uh, what I know about you is you're an artist, you're a writer, you're a teacher, and a big fan of comic strips and animation, things like that. And uh, so we're probably going to talk a little about everything and anything. You know, it's, it's all kind of a free form. So sure. uh, I guess basically you could uh, start off, start us off by just ask, uh, we'll ask, how did you get interested in animation and comic strips? And uh, take it Rob's, Rob's real specialty, though, is comic strips and really comic okay. strips, editorial comics, not really animation as much. Okay. okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I. And I will say, um, 
early on, uh, Stu Reesboard, who used to run Cartoon Carnival in uh, Pennsylvania, tried to get me involved in animation. But I've just found over the years, it's much easier for me if I just have fewer things to focus on. So comic <laughs> strips, you know, humorous illustration, British cartoons, British illustrations. You know, I'm, I'm covering from the 1860s to present. That's enough for me. I don't okay. need to start. I don't need to start diving right. into into lots of other things. Yeah, I'm the opposite. Where I'm just interested in a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and and I will say I, I started off that way, and I think. As I got older, I started to sort of fine tune my vision yeah. and things. And, you know, I, I tend to have uh, pretty eclectic tastes in things um, coming from coming from the arts, coming from university teaching. You know, I kind of I straddle, you know, the fine art world, the, the comic art world. And so I, I try to look at things through whatever weird lens I like to see things. And I don't I don't follow the mainstream you know, things and just kind of, I, you know, I write about what I love. I try to sh shine a light on um, artists who are kind of lost to time, who have fallen, you know, fallen through the cracks. Um, and, and just, I've always had that love and continue to have that love. But if you want some background, I mean, I got involved in this stuff through comic books, um, mm -hmm. you know, in the mid seventies, late seventies, I grew up in New Jersey uh, we had the Fans of Central Jersey. It was a comic book club in Central Jersey. Did small comic book conventions, you know, newsletters, all that stuff. Started going to comic conventions in the 70s. And just um, seeing the artist draw was real eye-opening to me, going to some of the early creation cons, 1977, 78. I mean, I remember meeting John Byrne back there. Um, way before X-Men stuff and just seeing him draw was like magic to me and that really got me pretty involved in just sort of the art part of the of the art world I wish I had the sketches that I got back then because those $20 sketches are worth uh, many times that um, today um, and through that uh, my parents at one point gave me a copy of uh, the great comic Chicago, the Chicago Tribune, New York Daily News by Herb Galowitz. Um, Galowitz um, produced some pretty crappy books, but he was the only one who was doing reprint books like that at the time. Uh, did Bringing Up Father, did the great comics of the Tribune, Chicago, uh, Chicago Tribune. Was Bill Blackbeard doing his stuff yet? Um, I think that was around the time Blackbeard was yeah. was doing like the big Smithsonian books. They would would have been around that time. And Bill's book, I mean, that was also really eye opening as well. I've got up on my wall over here. You can't see uh, Wash Tubs da Wash Tubs Daily Strip that was in Bill's book. Um, that whole whaling sequence that he did of um, Roy Crane's Wash Tubs um, was just it blew my mind because that wasn't the stuff I knew. I mean, I grew up with you know Peanuts and Louie and Beetle Bally and you know more of the humor strips. I didn't really know anything about the adventure stuff, so those books really introduced me to you know Dick Tracy tearing the pirates, Gasoline Alley, all that kind of stuff, and um, I I was hooked. I mean, that was. I joke with my mother that was my gateway drug into yeah. into comic strips, and uh, I've never I left. I tell that. people that my gateway drug into what I like was Brian Walker's book because I got mm -hmm. two books at a Borders bookstore the same day. Yeah. I was literally not joking, hands and knees, begging my parents to get two books: Brian Walker's book of the comics, the complete collection, as well as Jerry Beck's book, The Hannah Barbera Story. Yep, and both books. I remember opening up, and I remember seeing. <laughs> I remember seeing, discovering Peanuts, and I remember I had familiar with like five different comic strips, but I remember discovering Crazy Cat and Pogo, strips that I would understand later when I grew up a little older too. Right. Well, I, I still I I don't know if I I still don't know if I understand Crazy Cat. Uh, Crazy <laughs> Cat. It, Crazy Cat is my favorite strip of all yeah. time. I would say, um, but understanding it. I, one of the strips I don't feel like I need to understand. My to favorite, my favorite, by the way, I wanted to tell you, I never got to tell you my favorite crazy, I discovered my favorite crazy cat storyline the other day. I was reading something and I was reading, I'm a big silent movie buff. And I bought that Fanagraphics, those Fanagraphics books I've been buying, the newer editions of the crazy <clears throat> knickknacks that they've been publishing recently, which I hope yep. they come up with the next one soon. But, um, Harold Lloyd. I there was a Harold Lloyd storyline and I love it. 
Yeah, he did. He touched on Chaplin at some point. Lloyd. Yeah, he he um, reviewed the Gold Rush. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. I mean, he would get into some pop culture stuff yeah. throughout this. Trip. I love that Harold Lloyd storyline, though, where Crazy dresses up as Harold Lloyd. Yeah. <laughs> so you had a question, Camden, right before we started. I guess ask it again. Um. Yeah, I have a question about your websites because yeah. you run a lot of different websites. In fact, when I was yes. searching for Mark, there were a couple of websites I'd never even heard of because I knew you ran the Mr. Oswald website. Yep. I did not know you ran the Greg Duncan website. Right, right. That was that was new to me until t- today. Yeah, and, and Duncan. Um, um, if you could, I was just going to ask you, like, give us an effort. In essence, of who these artists were, because these are more. Yeah, artists. yeah. I will give you. I will give you a quick rundown. So, um, early in my collecting, you know, I, I grew up a sad sack comic book fan. Um, the yeah. earliest comic, the earliest comic I remember, yeah. buy, the, I remember buying was a sad sack comic, and somewhere I've got the number and the issue because I'd love to find the cover art to it at some point. But, Mark, um, might, Mark, Mark might be able to help you since he wrote the book on Harvey Comics. Well, well, no, I know. I mean, I know which issue it is. I, I'd like to find the cover, the original art, though. For it's the a comic. George Baker one, right? It's not. It's a, a George Baker cover. Yeah. I love, okay. I love, I love Baker's late stuff. It's just so Bigfoot, goofy kind yeah. of stuff. But yeah. my father bought me that comic on the way to. Um, he worked in New York, and I went with him one day. So at the train station going to New York, he bought me the comic, um, and so I knew of Baker. When I bought when I bought some of the the first uh, um, the collections of Sad Sack from World War II, the ones that appeared in Yank magazine, um, and in the back of the first in the back of the first volume is a portrait of Baker by Gregor Duncan, and that was my introduction to Gregor Duncan. It's a really yeah. beautiful it's a really beautiful pen and ink portrait of Duncan, and so um, many years ago on eBay. I had picked up some World War II pieces that Duncan did. He did when he joined the um, yep. the Army Air Force. He did publicity work, um, I think, in Colorado, I believe, and did some like training sort of illustrations. Um, and I'd never heard. I mean, I heard of him only through the Sad Sack book. Um, and so I started just doing a little bit there of research. Is, oh, that's it. There's, there's there's George Baker by Gregor Duncan, <laughs> and so. Um, I started doing some research, and I ran across. What is that book, a, Mark? Um, what? It, this is called Sad Sack. It, uh, my yeah, desk jacket's the, ripped, unfortunately, yeah. but yeah, it's. There were, the, there were two volumes of that, so that's yeah, the first. This is the first one. one. I have the second one over there, but yeah, they're wonderful <laughs> books. Yeah. Um, but in doing some research, I ran across an archive in Nevada, um, part of which featured a an oral history by Duncan's widow, um, Janice Goodhue. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm looking around because as a, you know, researcher, you got to follow any, any dead ends. I, I had no hopes that she would be alive because she would have been in her 90s. <laughs> so I start, you know, looking in Nevada. Sure enough, she was alive in Reno, Nevada. And I wrote her a letter and I just said, you know, I'd love to do an article about your, your husband. Um, you know, would there be a chance to, you know, I, had, I wrote questions to her where she called me up. Long story short, um, my son and I always did a lot of road trips out to the Southwest um, from when he was very little. And so on one of these road trips, we detoured to Reno. I met her, interviewed her. She, I think she was 95 or 96 at the time. And tell me stories about, you know, after her husband was killed in World War II, Bill Malden consoled her and gave her this big, beautiful drawing that you know, she donated to a family friend at some point. But she she was also overseas because she worked for the Office of uh, like Wartime Information, OWI, something like that. Um, and so uh, that became the that became the basis for the article that appeared in Hogan's Alley, the Gregor Duncan article probably the first thing written about him since any obituaries you know appeared in print after he died um and he had an incredible life i mean he was there during early labor movements in san francisco and new york um he was there at um cafe society in new york uh the first interracial um club in new york uh, where billy holiday introduced strange fruit and zero mostel was an early was the first mc of that club 
Um, he he did a mural on their wall and received like a $75 credit that Janice said they never used that entirely because this is the 30s. 75 bucks went a long way in the 30s. Um, and he also, um, besides, he did a lot, he, I think he had, he, he illustrated 10 books, you know, worked for PM newspaper, did, worked in a lot of publications, Judge. Um, he worked in Wiz Comics 1 through 10, doing, oh. doing, um, oh, was it Golden Arrow? Uh, yeah. Might have been the Golden, Golden Arrow. Arrow. Yeah. yeah. He did, he worked on three features. Um, and I know, you know, I talked to Steranko at one point about him because he, Steranko had talked to an editor who worked at Fawcett at that time, who spoke highly of, who spoke highly of Duncan, but people, he, it gets kind of confusing because I think that he's credited as Greg Duncan for Wiz. And mm -hmm. so people don't make that connection of Gregor Duncan and Greg Duncan. And he also worked for like the Daily Worker under a pseudonym. He took, uh, took his part of his mother's maiden name. His, his uncle was Maynard, De Maynard Dixon, the very famous Western painter. And so he took, I think he became like Greg Dixon or something for the Daily Worker. I was never able to find any of those published cartoons, though. But, you know, once I had all the information, it seemed silly not to do anything with it. And so, you know, I talked to the family and um, I just said, you know, do you mind if I put this together? Um, and, you know, I haven't done much with it since I got it started. I mean, I'd like to now that I'm retired, I'd like to be able to, you know, do some blog post now and again just to keep it active same with the the mr oswald so uh, mr oswald site uh, but that was really the basis for it i mean that that sad sack is the cause of my gregor duncan interest <laughs> you know you just you never know you just never know where these threads are gonna go i mean right. and i don't close i don't close any doors on any of this stuff you know um you mentioned the mr oswald site i mean i interviewed russ in 1995 i wrote him a letter because um, I found out where he was in Gibson City, Illinois. Um, he wrote me back and said, you know, call me up and we'll set something up. Well, the guy was 101 years old. And so I didn't procrastinate. You know, I set something up with him that summer. Um, and he died two months after two months after the interview. So mm -hmm. I got the last interview with him. And, you know, we're just talking. And this is 95. But at some point it dawned on me, you know, he's regaling me with stories you know, he worked with Billy DeBeck in Chicago, um, but he was a World War One vet. And do the math, even from 1995, from 1918, there weren't too many World War One vets um, still around. And he joined the Navy because he loved the Katzenjammer kids. And mm -hmm. so there were all these, all these sort of comic strip uh, connections that went on in there. So I've been, you know, I've been lucky to be able to do some interesting interviews, you know, to meet some interesting people through the interviews. Um, like I said, I, I tend to gravitate towards artists who I like, whether they're popular or not. And part of the joy of it for me is to, um, you know, shine a light on them. But I also like the reason why I gravitate more towards comic strips rather than comic books is it's easier for me to, to um, create like a social context. You know, because comic strips are very timely. You read Little Orphan Annie during the 30s, and you're going to learn about the, the Depression era. And you're going to learn about, you know, Hoover Hoover Tent Cities. Or you read um, uh, Dennis Rodman. Barney Google during the war. Yeah, Barney Google during the war. Mopey Dick and the Duke during the 40s and the Hooverville cities. Um, and there's something about that that I just find really fascinating. And I really like to, you know, present the context of it. So... You know, when I, I did the piece on um, Jay Irving, who drew Potsy, um, and he also drew Willie Doodle, he, did, he drew two cop two cop strips. Um, well, his son is Clifford Irving, the famous author who wrote the ho who wrote, you know, they did the movie The Hoax about him, starring Richard Gare, because he wrote that phony autobiography of um, Howard Hughes. Oh. And so, um, you know, I wanted an interview because this is his father. And this is right around the time the hoax came out. So right. um, a friend of mine, his wife at the time, who was an author, they shared the same agent. And so they sent me Clifford Irving's phone number. 
And so it's like, okay, I'll call Clifford Irving up. And he was very cagey because, again, it's right when the movie came out. And I said, I'd like to talk to you about your father and his cartoon. And he just got really expansive all of a sudden. He was like, oh, the great. Nobody, you don't want to talk to me about the movie. So, again, yeah. on one of the trips, you know, we went through Colorado and, and stopped in at his home. And I got to chat with him for a couple of hours and interview him about his father. And, you know, it was fascinating because he was diametrically opposed to his father's views about cops. You know, his father worshiped them. He, he had a, he had an uncle who was a strike breaker, you know, who would ride on horseback through crowds and break people's skulls open with his baton. And um, Cliff wasn't anything like that. He didn't trust cops, didn't like him. So I found it really fascinating, you know, that his father did these comic strips about cops and, his son didn't care for him right here. We'll have dueling cats. There we go. Yeah, yeah. this is a, actually a dog. This is a oh, dog. No, okay, I can yeah. tell. Yeah. yeah, my dogs won't fit on my lap. They're 130 she, she, pounds each. So yeah, she she's a camera a camera <laughs> whore. She loves to be on camera when I do these podcasts. So you'll eventually Excellent. see her. It's Mia. Yep. Is her name anyway? Um, on your uh, websites, you have the, yep. at least those two that are about artists. Uh, yep. Are you considering like a third one? And I'll just hold this up. I know oh, you know, is there a third one? We're missing. I have, I have five websites. I oh, have my yeah, own. I know, but yeah. uh, you know, just about artists. Are there any others? About you have five. Artists? What's the fifth one? So, so I've got my robstolzer.com. That's sort of my general catch-all. Yeah. I have one called freeassociationfunnies.com. Right. That's my work from the past four or five years. That's you know not comics oriented, but influenced by comics. Uh, but then my, my, the one that's my most recent passion is my ink slingers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the one that's my blog post. And that's, I just have a long list of, I have a long, yeah. long list of um, blog topics I want to write about. Um, and again, I like to go in depth on that stuff. I mean, I, it'd be easy for me to just, you know, post, here's a new thing I got and here's a little bit of info, but I, again, I like, to present the context. So the most recent one I did was about Alex Toth and the sketch pages. He used I to saw do. that. I saw yeah, that. I, I love that stuff. I love anything having to do with I processing. shared that with some Hanover Barrow fans of mine and they really got yeah. a kick out of that too. Well and here's the thing like we talked about animation early on. I I will admit I've never been a great fan of animation cells, but um the animation drawings I think are incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean that's I have more drawings than cells. Yeah, I mean, so to me, that's where the process really gets going. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the in-betweeners, you know, creating the cells off of those. I don't, the, the skill level's different. The creativity is different. And um, I don't know, there's, there's something about the preliminary stuff I've always really liked. And I've got a lot of that stuff. And again, collectors don't care about that stuff by and large yeah. because they're not have, they're not finished pieces. Yeah, I have a um, picture right there of, from what's offered below from yep. an original drawing. And my parents were like, when they bought me, I convinced them to buy it after like just explaining like, you know, why I want it. It's this little tiny sketch layout of Elmer. And he's like very small. And I'm like, he's like, why do you want it? It's such a weird pose. I'm like, that's exactly why I want it. Exactly why I want it. It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the production like pose of it. Yeah. Well, I don't, you know, again, I don't collect animation art, but I still kick myself for missing out. Harold Lowry, Howard Lowry, Decades ago, auctioned off a, a, an exquisite little sketch of Jiminy Cricket from Pinocchio. And it was just like a, this beautiful gesture drawing had so much movement in it. But again, I was like, well, I collect comic strips. I don't really collect animation, but I could still picture the piece, you know. And every so often, I'll kind of I'll look to see if somebody's got it, see if I could find it. Because <laughs> just a gorgeous drawing. And that, that stuff I find... I find really exciting, you know, because that's, again, those sketches are where things come to life. And that's what I really like to see in the work. I've always noticed that I think that collectors, regardless of what you collect, collectors click, I think, in some ways. Because I know people who are car collectors and I know people who let, and collectors, some exceptions, cough, gun, cough. Most collectors of things click I just think because you immediately understand why you buy something in some ways well there's all different reasons i mean i think yeah um you know like i think the current comic book market comic book art market is driven in large part by nostalgia right and so you know people of my age 
who make a hell of a lot more money than I do, you know, can afford to spend the kind of money because they've got the disposable income. I look at the prices of things. I just think it's nuts, but it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to square in my brain, you know, going to Phil Sulin conventions and 78, 79, 80 and seeing, you know, Sal Buscema pages for 10 bucks that nobody wanted or John Buscema. I mean, nobody wanted, I mean, you could get, you know, we all know the stories. You could you could get a Kirby page for 150 bucks, 200 bucks. Right. No, nobody knew. You could get you could get a you could. I mean, there's always there's always those old horror stories of like you know. I remember meeting Billy Ito for the very first time at a convention, and he said that what they used to do with Warner Brothers cells, and he shudders because I mentioned this to him. They used to just throw them on the floor, and they used to just ride, walk around them like. Yeah. Well, they they didn't have any monetary value. Listen, no. a, friend, a friend of mine who's been collecting longer than me, and I've been collecting about forty five years now. He was one of the first people to get a painting from Karl Barks. So we're talking seventies. Back then, um, a Gump's Daily strip by Sid Smith was worth the same as a Barks painting. So he traded the yeah. painting. He traded the painting for a Gump's Daily strip. The Gump's Daily strip is worth about the same today as it was back then. <laughs> but you know, nobody, nobody yeah. has a magic eight ball. Yeah. That can, that I can you always that. hear those old myths, like you know, Mort Walker saying that he wanted to make the Cartoon Art Museum. I don't know if this is true because he saw like Crazy Cat Daily's original art, like in sewers or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, that I don't know. So I'll ask my question again. So, uh, yes, you have five websites, but you have two specifically devoted to specific cartoons. Are you yes. thinking of adding a third? And would that third possibly be George Harriman, which is why I published this book? Yeah, pro probably, probably <laughs> not. <laughs> That's fine. Or any other maybe lesser known Yeah, artists. Mark, you know, not, you know, look, I, I just retired. Uh, from teaching i taught for 33 years yeah and i, I just kind of want to i want to do what i want to do it, I, I won't do any of this stuff if it's not fun you know yeah. like you know if if i can't write about the stuff i want to write about you know tom Heitches from hogan's alley has given me carte blanche if if i want to write about something I'll, he, uh, he'll let me do whatever i want to write about there's no money in it and that's okay because right. <laughs> it gives me an outlet and it you know again it it gives me a chance to um, shine a bit more light on cartoonists. George Harriman doesn't need any more light at this point. And, you know, mm -hmm. Michael's book, Michael's book is fantastic. Um, so much detail, so much, you know, so much flesh added to the bones of Harriman. It was a pretty I, I, enigmatic, enigmatic character, but his art is, I mean, it, I have ideas about doing a blog post about, about, um, Harriman, but it wouldn't be like a general thing about the strip. It'd be some like some offbeat thing about the strip. Like maybe looking at to me what I consider the three per three periods of Harriman. You know, the early stuff that was really this beautiful sort of quick, quickly and beautifully drawn work. The middle period where things kind of slowed down a little bit. You know, when colors added to the Sunday pages, and then the late stuff, which is I, I kind of liken it to him drawing with one foot in the grave. It's like Johnny Cash's late work where he didn't have a great voice anymore or Billie Holiday's late work where her voice was almost gone, but you could just still get something from their hearts. That's like Harriman. Yeah. And so I, I would like to do something like that, but it's not, it's not really website worthy. It's not enough to do it, to really do a full kind of a website. So. I wish for two things to be done about Harriman. Three things. Two. One of them is I wish that someone would, do a good book of the dailies. I wish that someone like Fanographic or someone would reprint the daily strips. They, well. they have been reprinted some. They've been um, reprinted also by like off-brand one-offs that, which I, have, I honestly have no no problem whatsoever from buying comic strip collections from unestablished self-publishers. I don't. Well, there, there are a lot of this stuff is public domain, so anybody... Right. And I honestly yeah. and I honestly don't see a problem with it, but I, I, what, I, what bothers me about those, though, is that they printed, like, it seems that they printed, like, 100 copies and they would print, like, the first six months of the first year, which in the end, dwells into a lot of money it would cost you to buy them all. Well, you know, the thing is, though, um, 
there's not a lot of money in comic strip reprints. Yeah. Um, when Dennis Kitchen was still in Wisconsin when I moved here, sorry, Max. When he was when Dennis was still in the state, I worked for him before I started teaching, and I worked on like doing paste. You know, we did wax wax paste ups of books and things. Oh. Um, and he published Nancy to help pay for other books because Cottonwoods wasn't going to make any money. I, you know, I'd say probably, you know, the spirit, um, um, little, um, little Abner and, um, and Nancy were the things that made the money, yeah. you know, for Dennis back then, but that allowed him, to, that allowed him to do other, to do other projects because they helped pay for those, those projects. So, you know, that stuff's in public domain. That's why I think it was Eclipse, who did the the crazy enigmatic books in the eighties? They right. couldn't use Crazy Cat because that's copyrighted, but they could use right. Is that why the Thanagraphic calls them that too? I I don't know. I don't I don't remember them doing. I don't remember them calling it that. But and I'll I'll be honest with you. I've never been as interested in the dailies as I have in the Sunday pages. Right. And um, the other I, thing I liked in the reprint is they don't. They did those. Um. They. I know they did the family upstairs a long time ago. I don't have a thousand dollars to buy a reprint book in acceptable condition, though. <laughs> the I'm, I'm a grad student next year. I don't have that money. The Hyperion the books, that, but the Hyperion, the old Hyperion books aren't that expensive. Yeah. Um, so that that's those are the that's the series of books you mentioned Blackbeard before Bill. Yeah. was the editor for those Hyperion books. I've seen them online though for like a thousand dollars a copy of it. I'm like, oh, I would ask though, are they selling for a thousand dollars? No, <laughs> because the, because the same thousand dollar copy is the same one online that I keep seeing. Yeah, no, you you can find them. I see I see them on eBay, you yeah. know, from time to time, and they're not very there. They might be thirty five, forty bucks. Yeah, they, I can they, afford they, that. They did the Baron Bean. They reprinted Baron Bean. I know and, Library of American yeah. Comics did that too, but I would love to see a reprinted book. Also of because they did something like this with Windsor McKay at one point. Yep. Where they reprinted all of Windsor McKay's uh, um, mis miscellaneous strips at one point. Yep. I'd love to see them do that with George Harriman. Yep. Yeah. It I think it's it's a twofold issue. One are the resources, you know, both in terms of monetary, but also in terms of source material. Right. Uh, a lot of that paper, a lot of that paper isn't around anymore. Especially that early stuff. Once you know what what Bill did, and what uh, the Johnson brothers did, Mark and Cole Johnson. I know Cole's no longer with us. Mark, I think, still around. But those guys saved. They saved books from being destroyed by libraries. Bill Blackbeard. I did remember. Remember, I did my whole. I did a whole final term paper on Bill Blackbeard and comic preservation. I interviewed you yep. for it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was he was a character, and he. <laughs> he he saved a lot of material for a lot of people, you know. And yeah, you know, what was nice about Bill was, you know, you could write him, and for whatever, like twenty bucks or something, he would copy off a year of a daily strip or something for you, you know. I mean, so he would, you know, he would dig through his stacks, and I, I wish I could have, I wish I could have seen his setup in San Francisco. I visited the Johnson Brothers once in Pennsylvania, they, and it was basically it was basically a hoarder house. They did um, aisles that, between between stacks of newspapers. When I did profile, I well filed the the Bill Blackbeard legacy enough for my term paper, which I never even got. I never even got it finished because I was so in depth in the work <laughs> that my professor just says, "You've done enough. I'm just going to give you a night. Please go back and do your other homework." <laughs> so I just had to stop doing it. I never even got it done. Which right to a problem when Brian Walker says, "Hey, I'd love to read your thing." I'm like, "Uh." <laughs> you have to finish. <laughs> because it my sometime. professor was just like, "Hey, you've done enough. You've got a hundred on the assignment. Go do your go to go do your other homework." <laughs> but um, but I went to Columbus for the Bill Blackbeard exhibit, and they gave me a whole tour of the Billy Ireland Museum behind yeah. the scenes, and it's that's incredible. that's the moment when I'm looking at Bill Blackbeard what he's doing, and I was looking for also for schools that I'm majoring now I'm going to Indiana University in the fall for library information sciences hmm. um and I'm like I look at Bill Blackbeard and I look at everyone's doing I'm like this is what I want to do not just comics but just archiving in general the whole archiving field and library sciences is what I like well and I think you know these days um because comics are taken so much more seriously yeah I think it becomes a much more viable 
um, opportunity. I mean, look at Karen Green at Columbia and what she's able to do with the collection there. I look at, you know, what Jenny and Caitlin are doing at OSU, yeah. what Lucy Caswell started there. I mean, that's Yeah, Lucy Caswell incredible. was also the person who I interviewed. She was the very first person I interviewed, yeah. which I later learned that she doesn't do interviews very often. She interviewed, I well, interviewed she's, her for yeah, she's, she's retired, and so... But I got to talk to her for about about two hours, so... Yep. Yeah, so, I mean, you come to appreciate the people who really just kind of did this stuff because they're passionate about about the field. I mean, I don't think Bill was making much money doing what he was doing, you know, driving no. trucks around to pick up, you know, bound volumes of newspapers across the country. But um, when you have when you have over half a over half when you have over over half a dozen worth of semi full semi trucks of newspaper delivered, you know, you've got yes. a lot of shit. Yes. <laughs> So I I have to, um, which I have a lot of stuff, but I all I also don't. I also I have a lot of stuff as you can see around me. I bought clothes worth of toys and everything. I also do not wish I had that much stuff though. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, there's collectors who are volume collectors. There's collectors who are kind of black hole collectors where stuff goes in and it never comes out, and it's never really it's never really used in some way i've always collected in a way you know if i could buy three of something and sell one or two of those things make my money back and keep my favorite thing out of that that's always seemed to work for me but i i i you know i've got a small office and i've got a small storage area in our basement yeah. area and you know i i can't i don't collect figurines i don't collect i don't collect sort of the ancillary stuff i i just i can't you know, I have to I have to stay focused on the stuff and even books. I mean, you were talking about, um, you know, wishing that, you know, Harriman would be reprinted more. We live in such a golden age of reprints right now. I can't keep up. I can't. Afford I can't to, either. I can't afford to. I mean, what Pete Maresca is doing with Sunday Page Press, yeah. what um, I'm looking at by Terry and the Pirates and Little Orphan Annie and um, yeah. Ello the yeah, L.A. There are those, I mean, the collections are incredible today. I know there's a new uh, Terry and the Pirates collection. I have two Terry and the Pirates collections already. I don't need a third one. I'm, I'm sure the, the reprinting is incredible. But, I mean, at some point, I, you know, it's like it's got to be enough. I I have the I have the negative that both of you don't have, and that is that I am many years younger than you, meaning that I missed a lot. Yeah, right. but you'll but you'll also see, you'll when I'm dead and gone, you'll be seeing a lot more than I've ever than I've yeah. ever seen. I mean, this is to me, this is the best time yeah. to be starting in this area because there's so many resources available to, so, to you. The one problem I have being a person who collects watches old movies and animation and comic strips is that I got I got a full shelf in my closet and I got a full shelf in my bedroom. They're all so full that my parents are afraid they're gonna break. Yeah, I can't stop buying books because I just love it. Yeah, yeah, but that's how you curate a collection, though. You know? <laughs> no, it really yeah. is, and yeah, that's why, that's why I think it's important I mean, to have a focus. I like having my big little books displayed, and I'm going to keep them that way. Mm -hmm. Just curious, Camden. I never asked you. I mean, you're young; you can still buy. But do you ever sell anything? <laughs> do I ever sell anything? I. I well, to, I asked Tim Hollis the same thing. Do you ever purge? He says never. I never purge. I oh, do purge. I when do it too. Comes to the point yeah. where, like you know, I when I was buying, you know, anything that had a Warner Brothers character on it when I was eight. Well, most of that stuff means nothing. I could give a, I could give a crap of what what Taz was on in the nineteen nineties. I want something from the nineteen sixties. So I get rid of all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I do purge. Okay, I, when, I'm curious when because comes I'm... That I'm no longer interested in something. It's purged. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah, which is fine. You know, I do the same thing. You know, it's like, and I try to keep. You know, this is totally off topic, but I'm a huge Beatles fan. You know how much uh, how many Beatles things there are? Oh, yeah, three, or, three or four. Yeah, yeah. 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 So <laughs> I mean, it's like I've gone through. I, I used to have probably about two hundred Beatles books. Probably now I have about fifty because you go through and I go, I'm never going to read this one again. This is some guy's opinion. 
this is not informational. Yeah. This is this, that's that. And so you get rid of those and keep the cream of the crop of everything. Right. And you could do that on any I, subject. I just I, happen to mention Beatles, you know. And I look them on my shelf and I find that I have books in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm like, I don't even like the Marvel movies. I'm more of a DC guy. Why do I need these Marvel books? I'm just going to get rid of them. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, well, so you're learning. Again, Buy more Popeye. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. Again, Popeye. Anything with Popeye on it, it's not going to like, like, I don't know if you've been to the, the, the Popeye Museum and I've shown this on Mark's podcast many times but I'm proud of it. I don't know if you've been to the Popeye Museum, that the fan museum in Chester, Illinois. No, that's where he was born, I know, yeah. Um, I bought this there. They let me buy this. This is oh. a 1942 Sirocco figure. Nice. You see, that kind of stuff I'm not going to get rid of. But I mean, right. the Popeye, yeah. but I mean, the Popeye toys that I bought when I was 10, that, that they're from the 90s. They're gone. They're going to be gone. Yeah. Great. But and, and, and again, I mean, I for as long as I've been collecting comic art, I've, I, you know, sometimes I'll buy things with an eye on selling things so that I can afford to buy other, yeah. to buy other things. And, you know, for a time I was doing, you know, an e-sales list, you know, a few times a year, uh, but school got so busy. Um, I think I did one last year and haven't done one in a number of months, but I've got one. I've started to work on one for August. Um, and, you know, if I can do a sales list every you know, four or five months, you know, two, three months, whatever, um, that helps to replenish the coffers, you know, pick up more things. But, <laughs> you know, at the same time, I've been collecting for 45 years. I'm 61. I don't plan on having a, a Viking funeral and burning all uh -huh. this stuff. And so, um, you know, I'm not taking anything with me, you know. Yeah. So if there's ever grandkids, some of this stuff will be sold for college funds, things like that. Um, yeah. You know, I, don't, I, I don't understand the idea that that I know there are certain collectors that they refuse to like there are certain collectors that though I can think of that probably would refuse the idea of having their stuff sold when they die they want their kids to have it or whatever I personally think it should be sold or go to an archive like you know if I was if I was older I would say you know do whatever you want with it as long as it goes to a good place because it's not going to be a good place rotting around here right. well the the reality of the situation is when that collector is dead, they no longer have a say where it goes. Yeah. Um, you know, recently, I don't know if you follow the heritage auctions, but you know, Bob Murphy's yeah. collection of um, Terry and the Kniff work was up there for a number of months, you know, and Bob collected for decades and I didn't know him well. I just knew him a little bit. We did one trade, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, but he had nobody to really leave the work to. Um, and so it all went to heritage and now other collectors get to enjoy that stuff. And so, I, you know, should stuff go to archives? I mean, I get asked that, you know, frequently, um, part of this is my retirement, you know, I've invested a lot into it, both money wise and kind of sweat equity and research. Um, and so in my case, probably won't go to any archives. It'll, yeah. it'll be sold eventually. I um, think I, so. Oh, I um I but I wanted to ask I know that um there's a person who does animation art fake art he posts about fake animation art that's being sold and he also he also does stuff with comic books and comic strips and all that but because they they're kind of like sister mediums but he's noticed that there's a lot of fakes being sold on heritage auctions right now for art and drawings. I don't see a lot of fakes on heritage. I've I've seen some. Yeah. I've seen some at most major auction houses. Um, more on eBay. Yeah, oh, definitely more on eBay. Oh, yeah, eBay. Um, there's so there's, the... there's got to be some factory in Peru selling off weird fakes of art. Well, um, Italy is one place where they're coming from, Brazil. Um, I, I joke with people that um, after Dr. Seuss passed away, um, there were no more inscribed drawings being offered. You know, when Dr. Seuss was alive, you know, he was pretty generous and he would send out drawings and they were always inscribed to the recipient. Mm -hmm. um, but when he passed away, all of a sudden, you know, no drawings were inscribed anymore. Um, I think I have, if I can find. Yeah, yeah. it seems that every, everything, every Schultz, it seems that everyone has a Schultz drawing and the very bottom and the very small print on eBay says, this purse was made made as made by or in the styling of the creator. Yes. 
<laughs> that's a very, very small printing to like legally get out of it. That's the way that's the way that they that and they I also I have to look at reviews. Reviews are either two things. I know this for these things. Either one, they're fake. They're fake reviews by robots or whatever. Oh cool. Oh cool. So, so that was inscribed to me. He was very generous. You sent him something and uh you included a self-addressed padded envelope and he would Send it back to you and inscribe it. He, so you, sent, you sent that particular book. I sent yeah. that book. I've got a couple book. I've got a couple books signed by him. He did a on his stationery. He did a drawing of a flit can for me. He used to do the quick Henry the flit ads, the bug spray ads, and yeah. I've got another cat in the hat drawing. Um, it wasn't Mark. a big deal back then, you know. He, you know, I don't think they were bombarded as much as people are today. Right. Yeah. What was that? I, I also wanted to say though that I think that. Um, it's always it's I've seen now recently I've seen it's always three people that get that four people who get faked on comics and notice it's five people for some reason they think Andy Warhol is a comic artist <laughs> every drawing of Mickey Mouse is Andy Warhol signature and I'm not really sure why Mark you've seen those weird Andy Warhol drawings how do you pronounce, pronounce that guy's name uh, two or toe fruit. I have no idea Oh, okay. Uh, the one that has the website on Facebook of uh, fakes, uh, it, his first name is spelled T-O, and oh. I don't know if it's Toe or Two. Or, oh, is that Toe fr Frug? Is that yeah, yes. but I don't know how to pronounce yeah. it. If that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, I'm not it, sure. I'm not sure okay. <laughs> you know, yeah, and I don't want to mispronounce it, but, you know, I always say Toe yeah. Frug, you know, but I don't yeah, know if that's the case, you know. Then there's Kirby, of course. Yeah. And then there's Schultz. And then there's, um, and then there's Doctor Seuss. But then there's Bob Kane. Apparently, oh, yeah. everyone thinks that, and these fakers think that Bob Kane drew everything. Yeah, it'll be like a picture of Superman with Bob Kane's signature on it. And I'm like, what is this coming from? Where are their sources for this? Well, Bob Kane's I, authentic sketches I, were pretty bad, so yeah. sometimes the forgeries I, are too good. Yeah, I'm sure there but are like, others. They look like they look like Grant Morrison just drew it. I'm sure there are others, but when I was when they were alive, I remember seeing a lot of Schultz mm -hmm. and uh, what was the other one though? I, it, you just said his name. I can't even remember. Kirby. Uh, not Kirby, strangely enough. Uh, I can't remember the other one. But Kirby's you know, takes are so bad. I can't, yeah, I can't but, <laughs> take it seriously. But it's just funny, you know. I guess Schultz didn't never clamp down on it too much when he was. Around, he figured, well, you know, it's like, but I, you could tell, you know, it's easy yeah. to tell the show. People fake. think those characters yeah. are easy to draw. They're not. No, <laughs> you know, but anyway, um, what was I going to ask? Oh, uh, Rob, so you were a teacher for a number of years. Yep. Did you teach art history or what did you teach? And did you teach a number of different things? I, I taught mostly studio classes, uh, painting, drawing, illustration. I taught a gra graphic narration class. Um, I did. I didn't. I didn't teach art history per se, although I taught it in some of the classes. And I taught kind of an art appreciation for non-major uh, class, but that was a combination lecture and studio because I I wanted the non-majors to have a chance to be able to draw as well because a lot of the students wanted that opportunity. Uh, the graphic narration class was a class I, I created. I really love doing it. I'm not a fan of the term graphic novels because mm -hmm. so many of what we think of as graphic novels are not novels at all. I mean, you think about, you know, Mouse is not a novel. Um, so graphic novels doesn't, to me, the term doesn't encompass nonfiction. So I, I prefer graphic narration. So, and I don't, and I'd use that class as a way to introduce students to the history of comic art. Some. I came up with a reader for the class that reprinted a bunch of things. Um, I'm big on, I'm big on the EC war books as incredible storytelling. You know, any of like the Kurtzman edited EC books, you know, they're like eight pages of how to draw, how to draw something in comic books, how to tell a story. <laughs> um, they're, they're brilliant, you know? Um, and so I just kind of gave the students an overview and, would put in some lectures, you know, something about Harriman, you know, something about Cliff Sterrett. Um, and I found, you know, publishers to be very uh, generous providing scans. You know, Peter Moresca provided some scans from some of his books because they're not easy to, they're not easy to scan from his books, you right. know, so he, he kindly sent some stuff. 
Um, so, you know, any way to get students involved to introduce them to that stuff, I thought was really, was really important. And, you know, it's interesting for me, I was talking about context before. Um, I did a whole section on this for the students on Bill Malden. And I think mm. Bill Malden to me was one of the most important cartoonists of the last century, because I think without Malden, we didn't have those EC war books with that sort of pacifistic anti-war view because most of those guys were vets of World War II. And so they saw Malden's work and then they took that same sort of vibe and brought it into the EC books. And I'm not sure that we would have even had MASH without Malden because the humor of Malden is the same black humor that you found in that you found in MASH. And I know there weren't a lot of guys. I think Jamie Farr was the only cast member who was a vet. I think he was in the Korean conflict, actually. Uh, I think he was in the Korean War, yeah. I think right, so. But that also um, comes from the play and then the movie and yeah. So uh but I but I think I think again Malden was so influential in all that stuff because the humor is is pretty similar, you know, throughout. Okay. So again, I like Malden, I like I like drawing those parallels with the students. Well, I was at the World War II Museum in New Orleans the other day for a Disney and World War II exhibit. I also went to Tom Hanks's in it's in New Orleans. I went to Tom Hanks's um, Beyond the Boundaries film, which is a 4D film about World War II, and Bill Malden is in that movie. Mm -hmm. Really, a lot in a lot of it. He was he was incredible. I mean, you read about his life. Um, Todd DiPastino um, wrote the probably the best autobiography or most bi best biography of Malden. I know there's another one in the works by a different author, but. You know, he and his brother left home, I think, when Malden was like 12 years old, and his brother, I think, was 14. You know, they drove out of the mountains of New Mexico to go to Arizona so they could go to they could go to school. Um, you know, he was he was doing those cartoons from the front lines in Italy when he was 21 years old. I mean, you look at the quality of the work and you look at the um, the maturity of the work. It's mind boggling. Um, it really was. Was it was it your website uh, that had the picture of Gregor Duncan with Bill Malden? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. So when Duncan, um, uh, how can blog, I, think? I should say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, that, well, that's the Duncan website. So yeah. Duncan uh, was pretty old to um, uh, to be drafted. Um, when his mother passed away, he enlisted. I think he was like 30, 33, somewhere around there. Don't, don't hold me to that. Um, and then when he was sent to the Mediterranean theater, he was sent to Sicily for that, um, to that stars and stripes office. Um, Ed Vabel was the, um, the one, the guy who ran the office um, out of Sicily and he had Malden. Um, show show Duncan around. So they got to know each other for a couple of weeks before. I mean, Malden wasn't there very. He was there like a month before he got killed and before he got killed in action on an assignment. But um, they got to know each other pretty well. I think I've got a, a quote from Malden or by Malden on the website that was from I can't remember if it was from Upfront or one of Malden's other other books. But he he thought quite highly of uh, of Duncan. Course, um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was interesting, though. I got to talk to Vabel. Uh, he passed away just a few years ago, but I called him up. And, you know, he's telling me he's the one who convinced Malden to draw with a brush instead of a pen. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's <laughs> right around the time that Malden put down his pen and picked up a brush. And, you know, the change was was incredible. I mean, it's like, you know, within like a three or four month period, the work just it was just incredibly mature at that point. I have a question, by the way, about Michael's Harriman book, George Harriman book. Yeah, um, and it is described by press as. Um, <laughs> are as, you getting? Um, a, are you getting a commission, Mark? No, I haven't even read it yet. I just bought it because someday I'll read this. <laughs> we were talking before the show. I'll let you talk in a second, but we were talking to the show. We have books we want to read, you know, and I tend to pick these up because I go. 
I know I will read this at one point, but I have about 10 books I'm reading ahead of time. But anyway, no, I'm a very slow reader, so I got tons of books on my shelf I haven't read. And we were the first campus that Michael uh, lectured to about the book. Yeah. So I was like 2007, 2017 or something like that. He um he lectured at um there he is. <laughs> there he is. He's a he's such a good he's such a good guy. He really I helped him with some of the research on that. <laughs> we met down in um you know his family is big in the chess and his son was taking part in a chess tournament in Madison which is a couple hours south of me. So we met at the UW down there because they have this incredible archive that hardly anybody goes to see. And they had letters um, by Claire Dwiggins where he talks about Harriman and getting together with Harriman in LA. So we went through the archives and made photocopies and we're looking for things that he could use to kind of flesh out in the book. If, ironically, if you ever follow Harriman's life, you could also follow early silent movies with it too because he was at Hal Roach. Yep. He had like an office at Hal Roach, I know. He had... Yep. He knew Chaplin. He had he. I think he was friendly with Buster Keaton at one point. I've read he was he was drawing on the Roach set. I know it's crazy. Yeah, it's insane. Because I was reading the Laurel and Hardy. Randy's credit has a Laurel and Hardy book, which I highly recommend. And it mentions very briefly, but it does mention in one of the early silent Laurel and Hardys. It says the Harriman worked on some some thing and to do with it. And I'm like, wait, George Harriman? And apparently, I asked Randy, and they said, yep, Harriman was on the set of the Roach Law. I'm like, wow. Yep. Yeah, they're shooting but, the our, they're shooting the our gang shorts there, you know. At that time, I mean, it's pretty amazing what they're doing. And um, he, well, one of the things that always interested me is, I, I was not, you know, I was like, let me put this perspective. I was seven when the book Schultz and Peanuts came out. I was like seven or eight. Okay, so. But it's always advertised, it's advertised back further as like in the vein of Schultz and Peanuts. But in my understanding, wasn't Schultz and Peanuts not considered a very good book? You're talking about yellow, that big, thick yellow yeah, one? That, yeah, yeah, the big, thick yellow book with the stripe on it. I, that one I've not read. Is that the David, yeah, like, yeah, David the Michelin? The family yeah. didn't like it, and I started reading it. I found it kind of dull. I, 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 found, uh, I found Charles Schultz's interviews book and similar ones to that, much better reads. So, you know, it's like... Is, it, is that the book where the author um, kind of psychoanalyzes? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the book. That's yeah. the book. Yeah. 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 I, I, I've, not, I've not read it. I mean, look, you know, I think there's certain strips, it's, it's sort of interesting to know about somebody's life. And yeah. certain strips, it doesn't really even matter. I mean, if you can't get a sense of Charles Schultz from Peanuts... Yeah. Then you're not really reading. Yeah, Charles I mean, had his own autobiography. It was, yeah. yeah, it was a comic yeah. strip. Yeah, I mean, there's there's things that I think are fascinating about Schultz, and I think he he had a love of classic comics. He was a big Percy Crosby fan. You know, he was big on Popeye he, now, huge. Yeah, what's that? He was huge on Popeye. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't surprise me. It's huge on Bill Malden. We'll tie it into there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Big on Bill Malden. But but he was also wasn't he like a he was wasn't he like captain of a of a machine gun squad or something yeah for World War Two so he would have been infinitely familiar intimately familiar with Malden's work yeah. because you know to the um, to the grunts in the field I mean Malden was like a god he was the one who was speaking for them where they couldn't speak themselves so it's not a it's not a surprise it just it's so um, Thinking about Malden and Peanuts together, it doesn't seem to fit, but he yeah. made it. And there is a there, there is a strip they both drew together. You know, yes. I don't know if you knew that, like yeah, ninety six yep. or something. Yeah, like or, or, yeah. Or, or 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 Schultz used images of Malden. It might have been, sure. but you know, yeah, still gave him credit. You know? So yeah, it's like <laughs> Malden was so influential. I mean, Ralph Bakshi is a huge fan of Malden's and tried to do an animation special with him and they yeah, but, yeah to... but that's a strip that just doesn't I, I think that there are certain strips that work I think I've argued with this before about adapting comic strips I really I love those Fleischer Popeye cartoons and I really like them but I really don't think that they even come close to adapting that strip well <laughs> or like, or like any. I, my Mark, I've talked to you about this endlessly. How I don't think they. I, I, don't, I don't think I they know, were. Meant to, I, I don't think. I don't think they were. I 
don't think they were meant to adapt the strip well. I mean, no. I, don't, I don't. I don't think they were meant to be an adaptation of the strip. I mean, look, my wife and I just came back on um, Friday. We watched the new Mission Impossible movie. Right. You know, and it's brain candy. It's sort of edge of your seat brain candy for two and a half hours. Right. That those movies have nothing to do with the original series or very right. little to do with the original series. I mean, the original series to me was so sedate compared to what the Tom Cruise movies are. So the Fleischer movies, I loved as a kid, we used to see them on TV, you know, yeah. they'd be black and white or color. I I had no idea who Seagar was at the time. Those were my introduction to Popeye and they're, they're not the strip. And, and the strip is not them. I I sort I sort of just saw them as totally different entities, you know. I just like too, the, but... the, the Peanuts cartoons are not are not the Peanuts strips. I think that I, in fact, for me, my personal opinion is for the Peanuts Schultz specials. I think that they just they just most of them aren't just very good. But most right. of the, most of the animated but the first five are fine. The first two are great. Three are great. But I don't think that they are even close to being the same thing as the trip. Or like, I know that Harriman was not a fan, and I I like them for what they are. But I but as long as you don't pretend that they're not them, is those those animated crazy cartoons. Mm-hmm. I know Harriman was not a fan of those. I've heard. No, and I, I don't pay attention to them very much, honestly. I mean, I guess the problem for me with with some of the the properties that become um, popular in a different medium is, you know, growing up, you know, I had an idea in my head what the characters sounded like from reading the comics yeah. and they weren't anything like the cartoons. And know, then the crazy part. cat was supposed to be female. Well, well, yeah. And I, yeah. Again, I, I've seen some of that stuff. I don't, you know, the Charles Mintz crazy cat things. They're not, they're not Harriman, you know, right. they're, they're like a there's, different a reason, cat. there's a reason why, there's a reason why Crazy Cat died with Harriman. There's a reason why Peanuts died with Schultz. Right. There's a reason why nobody's doing Calvin and Hobbes anymore yeah. because they're just not nobody. Nobody can carry them on like they, those guys did. In defense of the Peanuts specials, I'll say at least Schultz worked on them. You know, yeah, unlike some of yeah. these other cases yeah. that you're saying. I, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think though that um that when I remember well when I first discovered Seagar. Seagar's Popeye is my favorite comic strip, followed closely by Schultz, Pogo, and Crazy Cat. Um, but P- Seagar is my favorite comic strip because just the idea of because I remember watching the Fleischer cartoons and the famous cartoons. We can go into a different story about why the famous cartoons, the the later color, the later after the 40s color ones aren't very good. Mark, you'll know that discussion well, um, <laughs> but um, but the the flight those those cigar strips are like an adventure storytelling. It's like the the best adventure strip combined with the best comedic strip. You've got the gruffest heroic, the gruffest most ugly character in the world, <laughs> and he's in like and Olive's not a flanky female in the strip. She's almost as gruff as Popeye is in the strip. And they're basically going to Dice Island. They're going on the surrealistic, you if you if you allow the words, completely surrealistic worlds based on just Seagar's own imagination. Yeah, but but in the end, you know, any artist who makes you buy into their reality is doing their job. I mean I remember reading something that Joe Kubert said about drawing Tarzan, he basically said he was trying to make a movie. Right. And that it was his goal to bring the viewer in for however, mean, many, for however many pages, you know, that movie was going to last for, you know, but it's an interesting point you mentioned about the adventure. I mean, there were, there were to me kind of two different kind of adventure strips. There were the more gritty realistic strips, you know, Terry and the Pirates and Scorchy Smith and, um, um, uh, what was Frank Robbins strip or Prince Valiant. And then you had, you know, more cartoony strips like Alley Oop, I think. Yeah. Straddled between cartoony and almost an animated sort of quality. He had like that thick and thin contour line that, that, um, that Minja McKay used in Little Nemo. But then, you know, Roy Crane, 
to me is really the master of the adventure strip in that sort of Bigfoot cartoony style. But man, could he write a strip? He could draw anything. Um, and it just, it wasn't like that realistic sort of a strip. And so there were a couple different schools of these sort of strips that were going on at the same time. And I get such a kick out of that, that they can all work in different ways. And, you know, again, the thing with the students I try and put into context for them was, you know, movies are fairly young in the 20s, you know, very young. Radio is in its infancy right. in the 20s. I mean, you've got comic strips was your adventure. You know, you're yeah. seeing that every day in the newspaper. You're following what's going to happen. I mean, we're spoiled by reprint books because we could see five strips on a page. And then I'm spoiled you know, by growing up with the Internet. Let's play yeah, let's, yeah. Let's, let's, let's well, this perspective here. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so it, it's very different today because you don't have to wait to read an entire year. But can you imagine, you know, um, Harry Tudhill and the Bungle family, he had some storylines that went on for like four and five months. Yeah. Or and like people, people are following these every single day in the newspaper. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Rob Stolzer and Camden Spees for being my special guest. Part two of this interview will be coming soon. Remember, you can always watch the video version of this episode on YouTube. Episode number 227 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2022. Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.